0: If you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're back in our verse-by-verse study, this incredible gospel, the Gospel of John, and today we'll be venturing into chapter 12, and I've entitled the sermon title this morning as Family Worship. Family Worship, John chapter 12. We'll look at verses 1 through 11, and we'll see how far we're able to get into this here together this morning, and so Uh, John chapter 12, I think this is a familiar story to many of us, but let me read it and then we'll dive, dive into our time together. So the Apostle John writes this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor?' He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for the examples that we see here before us in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts today through your word as we learn what you you want us to learn, Lord, and that we can live it out like you want us to live it, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, typically, when we think about family worship, we think about that time when families gather together to spend time in the scripture and to spend time in prayer and to spend time maybe singing songs to the Lord and, 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 and forms of worship as such. And I, and I love family worship. Uh, just a couple of months ago, I may have told you that we sometimes just sit around the table, especially on a Saturday morning, and I'll just kind of read through what I'm studying in my quiet time. And after we've read and talked for a little while, I'll go around the table and ask each one of the kids to pray. And it was just uh, my five-year-old Zoe who started us off that morning saying, God, I just pray that you would teach me how to read. So I could just read your word, Lord. All I want to do is just read your word all day long, Lord. And you just like going on and on and just like, oh, my heart is so full when kids do things like that, right? I just want to read your word. And I think about family worship. It comes sometimes as a a joyful time like that, a time of ease and, and excitement. But there's other times that family worship is like herding a bunch of cats, To get them to all come together and to listen to what it is that you want to teach. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about family worship, but not necessarily in that thought, but rather the thought that we'll see here this morning about how we can worship God together as individual family members. I mean, this morning, we're going to see God being glorified through someone being a witness to Christ, someone being a worker for Christ, and someone being a worshiper of Christ. And so I just wanna remind us today that family worship is not just sitting around the table and reading the Bible and praying and singing together, but it's also about families being a witness for Christ in the world that we live in. How can you be a witness in the world? Well, it would be by looking for opportunities to be a light even as a family. And maybe for you, that's saying a prayer or a blessing together at a restaurant as you're about to have your meal. Maybe there's opportunities when you're outside in the yard or or, or just kind of taking out the trash and you see another neighbor, you're able to interact with them a little bit. I remember a couple of years ago, my son, Nate, was running cross country and he was talking to this one friend and I'd been kind of talking to his friend's dad. And so we made a little deal who could witness the gospel to the friend first. Was it going to be Nate with his friend or me with the dad? And I'm happy to say Nate actually beat me uh, to the punch on that one. But you know, there's an idea of just families doing what they can do to serve God together. It may be going on a family mission trip, as some families I know will be heading to Fiji this summer. And so family worship is about being a witness, but it's also about being a, a servant that works together. I mean, how can your family worship together through work? It could be by doing chores together around the house. It could be by serving one another. It could be by serving another family. It could be having families over to your home or hosting a small group or a get-together where the family can strive to work together to clean the house and to, to be hospitable to those who come over. It could be something like working together as a family at an outreach event, like when we did the Raise to Reach event last October. And family worship is also about really worshiping the Lord together, it's not just singing and being in scripture. You, you can sing and not be in worship. Or you could sing and be totally moved in your heart as you ascribe glory and worth and honor and value to the king. And it could be that you you want to learn how to worship better as a family, not just singing again, but worshiping with your heart and maybe even listening to sermons together and discussing what you're learning as an act of worship. It could be an agreement in the family to sacrifice something that means a lot to your family so that you can give more to the Lord. Well, this morning we're gonna see a family that worshiped together. We're gonna see a family that you already know quite well We're going to take a look this morning at Lazarus, and at Martha, and at Mary, and see how these three siblings worship the Lord together. These three were all part of the same family, and this morning I want you to see how they will use their strengths and their life experiences to worship Christ together. This is an example of family worship. Different gifts, different abilities, different passions, but all worshiping the same Lord. And so this morning we're going to see how Lazarus was a witness to Christ, how Martha was a worker for Christ, and how Mary was a worshiper of Christ. And so here we are, chapter 12, verse 1. Let's first look at Lazarus being a witness to Christ. And let me just remind you, this is your first blank of the story of Lazarus. In verse 1, it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from The dead. You'll remember that in chapter eleven records the detailed story of Lazarus. Lazarus lived with his sisters Mary and Martha in Bethany, which was only about two miles from Jerusalem. And this family was close to Jesus, and it became apparent that Jesus had stayed there with this family in Bethany on several occasions. And then one day, while Jesus was out doing his ministry, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Jesus did not come until a few days later after Lazarus had actually died. And both Mary and Martha were a little bit upset about this, but Jesus said to them, your brother will rise again. And after bringing Jesus to the tomb, Jesus was deeply moved. And that's where we read in the Bible that Jesus wept. And then Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha quickly responded, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Martha was speaking in in physical terms of the natural reality. After the body dies, it decomposes and being dead four days would have left a very foul odor as the process of putrefaction had fully set in. But Jesus decided to go forward with a spiritual truth and that truth is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus came to earth as the son of God. And there he is here in Bethany to demonstrate that he has power over death and he has power over disease and he has power over decay. And so he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And only Jesus can command life like that. Only Jesus can regenerate a dead man's body. Only Jesus can make someone who's been in the grave for four days to, to become alive again. And just as Jesus, and only Jesus, can give physical life, only Jesus can give spiritual life. You and I are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And the Bible says that we were born that way. And apart from Christ, there's no spiritual life in the soul of a man. And in our depravity, we followed the course of this world. In our depravity, we followed the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible says that we were by nature children of wrath. And then, verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2, that I'm kind of alluding to, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." And what we're learning this morning is, like it or not, that moment you become a born-again believer, you also become a witness for Christ. You become a witness for the gospel. And a witness is someone who shares their testimony. A witness is someone who points to the validity of their salvation in Christ. A witness is someone who unashamedly tells others about what happened. And my friends, Lazarus, and this chapter 11, chapter 12 is a powerful witness of someone who's testifying of the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. And so should you and I be if we have been truly born again. And so verse one here says that six days before the Passover, just a reminder, the Passover was a feast of remembering how God had delivered Israel from their bondage in Egypt. They had been slaves there for 430 years. And then God sent Moses to be that deliverer, and God brought through Moses those 10 powerful plagues to dismantle the world's superpower, Egypt. And so the Israelites, as that 10th plague was about to happen, were instructed to kill a lamb and spread the blood over their doorpost so that the homes of of those Israelites would be spared the life of their firstborn, that the death angel would pass over that given home based on the sacrifice and what it represented of the lamb. And this was all to point, of course, to the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, who would be crucified, and by his blood, forgiveness would be offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so our setting today takes place six days before the Passover, Now, if you're working through the clock of Jesus's three-year earthly ministry, this is the third and final Passover of Jesus's public ministry, and we'll see here in the weeks to come how Jesus was actually crucified at the exact same time by which they would have killed that atoning lamb to provide forgiveness for the sins of the nation. It's going to be incredible as we get into some uh, some of that typology and see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment. And then what we see here is at the very end, excuse me, of chapter 11, Jesus went away to Ephraim, which was about 12 miles north, but now he's come back. He's come back to Bethany for the Passion Week, and this is the day before the triumphal entry. This is the day before Palm Sunday. This is the first day of the last week of Jesus's life before the cross. And so here Jesus is again at Bethany where he had been so many times before with Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Let's next look at that next blank there in your outline. Let's look at the position of Lazarus. That first verse kind of gives us the setting and the reminder of what we've been looking at in Lazarus. But look at this position of verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him that would be for Jesus there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, according to the synoptic accounts, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this dinner took place at the house of Simon the leper. It is, this is not Simon Peter, But Simon the leper, Simon was a common name during the first century, and this man, Simon the leper, was obviously a friend of Jesus. The very last verse, again, of chapter 11 says, now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. And so when Jesus comes back for that dinner, they're holding this dinner with the idea of we want to honor Jesus. We want to, we want to magnify him for what he's done and raising Lazarus from the dead. And we know maybe the time is getting near the end, but we're not afraid. This shows us that Simon was definitely a friend of Jesus, that Simon was willing to take a risk for hosting Jesus in his home, that Simon was not, he was not put off by the Pharisees. And there's a special dinner, again, hosted here, and no doubt this dinner would have included Simon the leper, who had been presumably healed from his leprosy. There would have been Lazarus that we're reading about reclining at the table with Jesus. There would have been Mary and Martha who is serving at this dinner and probably the disciples were there. And what I really want you to take notice of here in verse two is that Lazarus is one of those reclining at the table. What was Lazarus's position? Well, he's there with Jesus. Now, when they would have a meal, they would not sit up in chairs like we do in Western society, but they would lay down on their side and prop up on one arm and have one of those low tables with their feet away from their table and their elbow and chest close to the table, and that's how they would partake in these different meals together. And so here's Lazarus reclining at the table, and we're simply asking the question, what is Lazarus's status? What is Lazarus's credential to be at the table with Jesus? And the answer to that is, he is a friend of Jesus. That's what gets him to the table. Not his income, not his donations to the ministry, not his political affiliation or pedigree, no, not, not through some family connection that we are uh, aware of. No, Lazarus is at the table reclining with Jesus because he is Jesus's friend. I mean, you could be a dead man who was made alive like Lazarus or a leper who's been healed like Simon. Either way, you are welcome at the table of Jesus. Did you know that this same status, this same position, this same credential is what is true of every born-again Christian? There are no levels of hierarchy within the kingdom of Christ. There is no, I'll see you first, and I'll get to you later in the kingdom of God. There are no fast passes with God. There are no Disney Max passes that get you closer to God, right? Or, or if you're like one of my kids, when we go to Six Flags, it's like, Dad, Dad, I know we got a pass, but what about, what about if we had that, that Magic Mountain Gold Plus membership? What if we had that Platinum Membership? I mean, sometimes I think my kids dream about the diamond membership or even the diamond elite membership with God. We could just be reminded this morning that through Christ, you have a place at the table. That through Jesus Christ, Jesus will dine with anybody. Anybody? even with sinners. I mean, there was another occasion in Matthew 9 where it says Jesus reclined at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so we see that Jesus eats with sinners so that he can make them into saints, that Jesus spends time with the sick so that they can become well but especially for believers. I mean, how much more so do we in Christ have fellowship with our Savior? Jesus has a spot at the table for you, and Jesus invites you to his banqueting table. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And what I want you to see this morning is just a reminder that every Christian has been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Quit eating the cupcakes at someone else's table. Get off the diet of the world. Come eat of the bread of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to his table today and dine with Jesus. He has prepared a table for you in the presence of, of your enemies. This is is Isaiah 55, one through three. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Just a reminder this morning that there's a place at the table for you. Are you feasting and fellowshipping with Christ today? Are you sitting at his table? I bid you to come to Christ this day and he will by no means cast you out positionally through the gospel, you have a place with Jesus. And so we've heard the story about Lazarus. We've seen the position as a Christian with, with Jesus there, Lazarus. And now let's look at this last little blank here, the effect of Lazarus, the effect of his life. Skip down to the end of our passage, verses 9 through 10, and we read that when the, loud crowd, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also, what? To see... Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So I'm saying Lazarus, as a witness for Christ, had an effect on people around him. Once you have been raised to new life, as you spend time with Jesus day in and day out, it ought to have an effect on you. And in return, you ought to have an effect on others by how you live your life. Large crowds came, not only because they found that Jesus was there, but also because they wanted to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They had never seen this on the news. They didn't read about this on Twitter. this is only eyewitness only, all right? So the idea is like, we gotta go see for ourselves. I mean, you think people get excited today to see their favorite celebrity on the red carpet? Or you think people rush up after a concert to get an autograph? Or you like uh, to to think about jumping down on the sports arena after the game to get a selfie with your favorite sports star? Uh, Can you imagine the rush to see if it is really true? Is it really true that Lazarus is alive? I mean, we saw him die. We knew he was in the tomb. Is he really alive? And so the chief priests who were um, already wanting to kill Jesus don't like the effect of Lazarus. They don't like the fact that Lazarus is now being a witness for Christ, sharing his life with others, and so they want to now add Lazarus to the list of people they want to kill. I mean, these Pharisees and chief priests really are murderers. They want to kill Jesus, the Lord of glory, and now they want to kill Lazarus for what? For coming back to life? I mean, Jesus, they said, you committed blasphemy, and you claim to be God, we don't think you're God, but what did Lazarus do? He didn't do anything but just come back to life, and they want him dead simply because he's alive, and this is the insanity that we live in in this world. This is what unbelievers do. They want to silence the truth, they want to muzzle every argument that goes against their, universalistic, uh, their universalism or universalistic you know, thinking, right? They, they want to put Christianity out of the public square. Uh, their, their, their end game of the world is to obliterate, to expunge, to push for a radical cure of any influence of Christ or his followers on this earth. I mean, if Satan could have his way, he would wipe Christianity off the planet. But Satan can't have his way, and neither can the world. The light continues to shine in the darkness. The gates of hell will not prevail. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And on account of Lazarus and his testimony, here in verse 11 says, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Be encouraged this morning, church, just when you feel like it's getting really bad, just when you feel like the the world is going to hell in a handbasket, just be reminded that, oh yeah, it felt like that during the Bible times, they were about to kill Jesus, they were about to kill Lazarus, but many people were leaving Judaism, they were leaving that false faith that didn't move into a gospel-centered view of the sacrifice of Christ being the means of salvation, still somewhat depending on their works, And so it says not one, not two, not a few, but many. Because of Lazarus' testimony and because of his witness for Christ, many were leaving the falsehood of Judaism and believing in Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, is your life having an impact on others? If you've been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, just like Lazarus was physically speaking, are you living a radical witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, if I was dead and made alive, I'd probably be emboldened somewhat to tell more people about it. Be like, hey man, I was dead. If I got here's my casket. Here was the funeral. Look, it all happened. I was buried in this grave. I was gone, I was a goner. And now look at me. I'm alive. I'm alive. I am mean, alive. that's so cool. Like we would be prone to do that if it physically happened. How much more should we spiritually say, I was dead. I was a mess. I was a wreck. I was an enemy of God and yet God has made me alive. I mean, that's how we ought to live our life, as a witness for Christ. I am unashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16 says, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so we see that Lazarus was made alive, that Lazarus sat at the table with Jesus, that Lazarus had an effect on the world. And I believe that there's much we could learn and emulate by his example. Lazarus, an incredible witness to Christ well, in his family, he had two sisters. So if Lazarus was a witness to Christ, then certainly we could say Martha was a worker. Your second heading there. Martha was a worker for Christ. And your next blank says Martha did become distracted with much serving. Look at verse two. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. That's the only place she shows up in the text, but I want to make a point about it because that's kind of how we know Martha. We know her probably best from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 40. As you might remember, when they were gathered together, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now we're pointing out from Luke 10, 38 through 40 that Martha, she was a servant, but she also got distracted with much serving. Some, some things that Martha did were good. She welcomed Jesus into her home. She extended hospitality to the Lord. She wanted to make sure that Jesus was comfortable in her home, but she got distracted. Her strength became a weakness. And when she got distracted, it led to two sins. Number one, she started to complain. Her serving is now going into complaining about Jesus. Won't you tell Mary that she needs to help me? I mean, I'm doing all this work. And we know that Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Or the NIV says, without arguing or complaining. The second sin that she fell into is that she began to get self-righteous. She starts to now instruct Jesus about what he needs to do. Tell her to help me. This is a self-righteous, prideful attitude. I mean, if Jesus wants to tell Mary to help out, that's fine. But don't you go around telling the Lord what it is that he should do as somehow maybe he's dropping the ball or being too passive in any situation. And so Martha struggled with that. She also struggled, your next blame, with being anxious and being troubled. Again, verse 41 and 42 from Luke 10, where the Lord answered her and said, Martha... Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We, we talk about being type A, you know, oh, that person's type A. And well, Martha was definitely type A. She was like, get it done, all business, got to have it done the right way. And Christians, you know, could learn a lot from her, 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 uh, her desire to do things well. It's not like, oh, don't be type A, you need to be type uh, Z, be type Z. I mean, there's all kinds of types out there, right? What what we really would be after would be knowing that Christians need to be hard workers, but we need to rest as well. Uh, We could all grow in our service, but more importantly, we need to grow in our attitude. We need to grow in having a godly attitude as we serve. Yes, we should work hard and not be lazy, but we should also choose the good portion. And do you know what that word means, by the way? Portion, when it says Mary chose the good portion, it simply means that part of your life that you share with others. It's not only about serving others, but it's about having the right attitude as you serve and sharing life with others in meaningful times together. Listen to me, true service is worship. And if you're not worshiping, but you're falling into complaining, then you're not really serving with a heart of worship. God honoring service is what he calls us to. And here's what I want you to see. I think Martha finally got that. And the reason I think she got that, we could look at your next blank that says, but Martha believed that Jesus was the Christ and that he was the resurrection and the life, and there in John 11, we read about how she does still have faith. I mean, it's clear. She's like, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life, and she got a little confused about maybe Lazarus being raised on the last day, and Jesus is like, no, it's here, and it's now, and Martha was a believer. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was coming into the world, and so we know for sure Martha is a believer. She came to understand even better that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and my thought is, is that she learned to serve With a heart of worship, because next we see your next blank, Martha served the Lord, and that is a good thing. So here in verse 2, Martha served, and I'm saying that's a good thing. Here's why. Because nowhere in verse 2 or anywhere in chapter 12 do we see Martha being rebuked. Nowhere in verse 2 is she corrected by Jesus. There is a community meal going on, and Martha is faithfully doing what Martha does, she is serving. And I'm presuming, admittedly, that maybe here she's finally doing it appropriately as an act of worship to the Lord because nowhere is she corrected like she was in the other setting. Maybe Martha has finally learned to say, you know what, I'm still going to serve, but I'm going to do so in a more joyful way, in a more kind way, in a way that's a true blessing for everyone. It's it's Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. So I trust Martha has learned to do this well, and I would ask you this morning, are you a worker for the Lord? Do you you serve him faithfully? Do you sacrifice your comfort to be a blessing to someone else? If so, do you do it with a heart of worship? Because if you're not doing it out of a pleasant, joyful, God-honoring attitude, it could be that you're doing it in the way Martha was when the Lord did rebuke her. And so we've got to be reminded we want to work, but we want to work in the Lord and for the Lord. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And so here's what we're seeing, Lazarus is a witness to Christ, Martha was a worker for Christ, and there's a third family member, and I'm gonna spend the rest of our time obviously here, on Mary, and we could say that being a witness and being a worker is also worship, but let's just highlight Mary simply as a worshiper of Christ. Look at verse three, your next blank there, Mary had an extravagant devotion to Jesus. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary, you know this story, took a, a pound of expensive ointment. This reference Is to a Roman pound, which is about 12 ounces instead of the English pound, which is 16 ounces. And so 12 ounces here of expensive ointment or costly perfume is a fairly large amount as far as ointment or perfume goes. You know, I have a, a little bit of that perfume in our house for either my wife or uh, for, the, for, the, for the, that I might have received as a gift. And it's just in a little thing, right? Just a three, four, five ounces. This is 12 ounces, right? It's the size of a soda can. So that's a fairly uh, large amount of expensive perfume. And the Bible says that it was pure nart that this was a fragrant oil prepared from the roots and the stems of an aromatic herb plant, nard, in Northern India. It is reported that this plant grows best in the Himalayas. Now the Himalaya mountain range, it has some of the highest peaks in the world, including Mount Everest. And as I researched this week, it is said that this plant, this nard plant grows best at 10,000 to 16,000 feet. Now, I don't know if you're a mountain climber, but anytime you're climbing a 14,000 foot mountain, like we have a lot of those in the States, that's a big deal. Like, you gotta train for that, and when you get to the top of the mountain and sit down on the peak, like, you're gasping for breath. And these plants grow 10,000, 16,000 feet high, and this nard plant produces oil that is used as a perfume. It can be used as an incense, and it can be used as an herbal medicine. And it was terribly expensive because it was precious, and it was hard to come by. Can you imagine climbing possibly ten to 16,000 feet? Can you imagine harvesting this plant and then transporting it back down the mountain from northern India to Israel, which is a distance by airplane of 3,000 miles? That's through the air. If you had to go through the ancient roads, it would be well over 5,000 miles. And you would have to cross Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and Jordan. By the way, that's all desert and that's all mountain and that's a hard plain to traverse. And then it's just not any part of the plant. This is the pure nard. It would have taken several plants just to get that purest part of the plant, the best part, the pure nard. Now this same word, nard, is mentioned twice in the Song of Solomon. As the bride of Solomon describes in Song of Solomon 1, verse 12, while the king was on his couch, my nard, which is a reference to her perfume, gave forth its fragrance. And again, in Song of Solomon four thirteen, as Solomon describes his bride, he says, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choice fruits, henna, and with nard. right, so I'm just saying that this is a special, beautiful, expensive, lavish, extravagant substance that the Bible knows about and describes, and this is what Mary brings to Jesus. She takes the most expensive perfume that money can buy, and verse 5 says that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, one denarii is one day's wage, so 300 denarii is about a year's salary. Now, imagine that. Maybe you thought at some point, if you were dating somebody or engaged, you're like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get some nice perfume for my loved one, you know, and you go out and you spend, if you're really cheap, you spend like 20 bucks, right? And then if you're like, no, oh, I'm gonna dig a little deeper. I'm gonna do a $50 bottle, you know. If you're really, you know, oh, I'm gonna spend $100. It's gonna be really, ca-. can you imagine a year's salary? You're going to say, I'm going to take a year's salary. Do you know how long it takes to save up a year's salary? For many of us, it would be a lifetime savings. Do you remember how long it took you to save up for that down payment on your first mortgage? I mean, it would have taken years of blood, sweat, and tears to have a sum of money like that. And would you be willing to take that kind of money and offer it to Jesus? Would you be willing to do that? Mary did. She anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. like David, Mary would not give to the Lord that which cost her nothing. Now there are two separate accounts of a woman anointing Jesus with oil. One is in Luke seven and the other one is this one. The one in Luke seven was a former harlot while we know of Mary as being a virtuous woman. The one in Luke 7 took place in Galilee to the north, while this one took place in Bethany to the south. The one in Luke 7 took place at a Pharisee's house, while this one took place at Simon the leper's House. So there's two different accounts, this one and the one in Luke 7. This one, John 12, is also recorded in Matthew 26 and in Mark chapter 14. And both Matthew and Mark tell us that this ointment of pure nard came in an alabaster flask which Mary broke and then poured out the perfume on Jesus. They, they both say that she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table but John says, as we've already read here, that she anointed the feet of Jesus. The question is often asked, well, which one was it? Did, he, uh, did she anoint his head or his feet? And I believe that it is the same account, and I believe that because of, the, of the, the, uh, the, how much of it she had, 12 ounces, that it was plenty to pour over his whole body, starting with the head, and working his way across his body as it would have dripped down, all the way down to his feet, and then she would wipe his feet with her hair. Now, to wipe somebody's feet is a very menial task. I just want you to think about the picture again of anointing Jesus with this perfume, all that Mary went through, the expensive cost of it, the idea of bringing it to Jesus, the idea that she's a, a lady now wiping his feet. Some historians say that not even the Jewish servants were asked to wash the feet of another. This lowly responsibility was reserved only for foreign slaves. And so to have Mary wipe the feet of Jesus was an act of kindness and true humility. It was John the Baptist who had similarly said that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And so for Mary to wipe the feet showed again utter humility here. In fact, the text says that she did it with her hair. So for Mary to do this, she would have had to let down her hair in order to wipe Jesus' feet. This is also appalling. A proper Jewish woman would never let her hair down in public. In fact, while there was no law against this, it was a custom, and the, the, the sense of it was, would be that only a woman with loose morals would have her hair down in public. But when Mary saw Jesus, And when she brought her precious gift to him, she didn't care about what others thought about her. She wanted to make the best use of her sacrifice and her hair seemed to be the best way to rub this precious ointment into Jesus's feet. Mary did not hold back in any way. She broke the alabaster jar. She poured out all of the perfume. She wiped Jesus's feet with her hair. And in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says this was a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to give extravagantly to the one that you love. Are you extravagant in your giving to the Lord? Are you generous in giving to the Lord? Do you pour out all of your love to him? Does he so captivate your heart that no gift is big enough to honor the glory of his name. You see, I'm afraid that some of us like to buy cheap perfume. And we like to offer God a sacrifice that doesn't cost us a lot. And yet we read here at the end of verse 3 that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This wonderful smell would have stayed with Mary as the oil also soaked into her hair when you love others in this way, it makes you more lovely. The beauty and aroma of this sacrifice poured out on Jesus stuck to Mary as well. When you glorify Christ, the glory and aroma of Christ extends to you too. When people smell you, think about Mary after doing this, she would have left maybe that setting, and people would have smelled this fragrance even on Mary. When people smell you, they can tell that you've been with Jesus. When people are around you, do they see a man or a woman who has been affected by the extravagant grace of our Lord? Well, we also see here that Mary was the exact opposite of Judas the thief. Notice verse four here tells us, but contrast, right? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And so what we're reading here is there's a great contrast here. Mary was one way, but Judas was the other. Now the Bible lists him out here as Judas Iscariot. This just means that Judas was from a small town named Kirioth in Judah. Now, this is interesting because, as far as we know, all of the other disciples were from Galilee and probably from different tribes. But Judas, being from Kirioth in Judah, would have been the only disciple that was from the same tribe as Jesus. Jesus being the lion of Judah. And now we have Judas, I like to think of him as the lemur of Judah. Lemur is a reference to a small primate animal with a small brain, which is active only at night. All right, so you have the lion of Judah, Jesus, and the lemur of Judah, which is Judas, the only two in Jesus's party that were from Judah. And so it's interesting, the Bible keeps saying that Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot. Part of it, I think it's just identifying which Judas, because it's a common name. But part of it might have been a reminder of like, oh, these two guys were from the same place. How could this guy Judas? I mean, the, 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 the other disciples were, were faithful to Christ, but Judas was not. And he's always listed, by the way, as the last one in the list of apostles, right? He's, he's identified regularly as the, the very last one in the list. And I think that, it, again, it would have been shocking to think about the fact they were from the same place. Uh, Judas offers an outwardly righteous and pious response to the extravagance of Mary's gift. What does he say? He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In other words, he is saying that Mary is wasting her time, that Mary is wasting her money, that what she's doing is a a total waste of good funds. What Judas is saying is that Jesus is not worth 300 denarii. What Judas is saying is that Jesus isn't worth your lifetime savings. What Judas is saying is that you shouldn't be extravagant in expressing your love for Christ because it makes other people feel uncomfortable. But verse 6 says that Judas did not say that because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. here's the real description of Judas. He is the epitome of a hypocrite. He he is saying one thing with his mouth, but living his life in a completely different way. He he says one thing, but he does another. Uh, Judas doesn't love Jesus. Judas doesn't even love poor people. Judas loves money. That's what he loves. You ever thought, like, what was it that made Judas so upset that he would betray the Lord? Like, why would he do that? Was he just not a believer? Did he not believe in Jesus? No, he had another master. He loved money. He was addicted to money. He was willing to sell the Lord Jesus Christ out for money. He had another God. And it wasn't the God of glory. It was money. He was a robber. He was dishonest. He was deceitful. He was despicable. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And apparently Judas was clever in his attempt to discount Mary and he even won over some of the other disciples because both Matthew and Mark record that the disciples became indignant saying, why this waste? I think it's a reminder for us: be careful not to be led astray by others. How sad that the disciples were drawn into Judas's influence. And is it often the case, if someone is radical for the Lord, they are sometimes misunderstood and criticized. In, in this case, we see that a cold heart and a stingy hand go together. Jesus was devoted to his master, but his master was not Jesus, it was money. He would go on to betray Jesus again for the 30 pieces of silver. You know what the Bible says? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now one last thought here, we'll wrap it up. Mary did not hesitate to express her affection while she could. Verses seven and eight, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. What Mary did was a blessing to Jesus and he was quick to defend her. He immediately affirmed Mary's act of love and devotion. In other words, Jesus did not say, Judas, you're right. Mary, tone down your affection. Mary, that's too much. Mary, just give a a couple of hundred dollars, not quite that much. In fact, earlier, Jesus had taught that you ought to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. There is no gift too great to give to God. There is no devotion too deep to express to him. There is no affection that is too loving to offer to the Lord. And this is why Jesus says, no, no, leave her alone. Stop messing with Mary. Let her do her thing. Jesus says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. And then Jesus says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. This is not mean, I believe that Mary would keep some of the perfume or save it when you broke the alabaster jar. The best I could do studying that is you just dump it all out at that time. That's the time that you can't really save it at that point once you break it. So she poured it all out before the Lord and it seems like what the sense of what Jesus is saying is that Mary has done what she has done to prepare my body for burial. She meant this to be an act of costly, humble devotion, but she also signaled more than she knew. In the culture of that day, it was not thought inappropriate to spend lavish sums of money on a funeral, including the cost of the perfumes that were designed to stifle the smell of the decay. But here was Mary lavishly pouring out the perfume on Jesus while he was still alive. Mary may not have known exactly when Jesus's death would take place, but she may have perceived that it was imminent. Mary wanted to express her affection to the Lord while she could. She did not wanna wait until it was too late. A feeling and an emotion came upon her and she wanted to actively show her love for Christ and not suppress this feeling. Oh, that we were more that way. How many times have you felt prompted to give a big gift or display an act of kindness and then you talked yourself out of it? How many times have you wanted to offer the Lord a great sacrifice and you allowed someone else to discourage you not to go that far? How I wish that we were more prone to be spontaneous and unplanned in the way that we show our love to the Lord. Should we think? Yes. Should we pray? Yes. Should we be measured with our actions? Yes. But I also think there's value in being extemporaneous, impromptu, and spur of the moment in expressing our worship to Christ. We wanna worship Him in spirit and in truth. We wanna worship Christ with our affections as well as with our convictions. I mean, what's wrong with giving a big gift to God? What's wrong with saying, you know what? I had this money set aside, but I'm gonna take hundreds and thousands of dollars and I'm gonna support the building fund. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying, you know what? There's a missionary named Kim Guess who needs 800 bucks a month. We're gonna meet her there, 100 bucks a month, done. But what happens is you hear stuff like that, the building and the missionary and this and that, and you're like, yeah, 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 and you get home and you're like, no, 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 no. I don't think, well, that's too much. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll pray for her. We'll do a one-time gift. You know, I'll see it with $10. What $10 do? You know, and in one sense, I get it. There's, there's the widow spent her mites. And if you only got two pennies, you spend the two pennies, right? But the idea is what's wrong with being extravagant when we think about showing our affection to the Lord? What's wrong with deciding to go to Fiji or to Brazil on those summer mission trips? What, what's wrong with just giving to the person that you see who's in need? Guys, what's wrong with you being extravagant and showing love for your wife while you still have her? Would you rather give her flowers today or put flowers on her casket? What's wrong with doing something special for your children? Or would you rather do something incredible today or wish you had after they've all grown up? And what's wrong with sponsoring a student to camp or helping out a college student by having them over and doing their laundry? What's wrong with giving that gift card to someone else? I mean, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, Jesus is not in any way discouraging the thought of giving to the poor or helping meet the needs of the less fortunate. Uh, Jesus is not undoing Deuteronomy 15, that says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. He's simply just saying this, there will always be poor people for you to help, but I'm not going to be here much longer. The opportunity to do good to me will soon be gone, and you can spend the rest of your life helping the poor, but there'll never be a time when I'll be here where you'll be able to express your love like this. And so Mary did what was right. Mary did that day what was inspirational. And get this, Matthew and Mark both say that Jesus at that point said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, how far and wide does the gospel go? It goes to the whole world. And wherever the gospel goes to the whole world, there's one story out of all the stories in the Bible that the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to attach this one story to it. Wherever the gospel goes, the story of this lady and this affection, and this devotion, and this sacrifice, and this love, the extravagance of what Mary did, I'm going to attach that story to the gospel and send it out around the world, because wherever the gospel goes, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know what that means? The actions of Mary, in some way, go hand in hand with the gospel, Meaning this, the gospel is not just good news because Jesus saves you from going to hell. The gospel is good news because it changes your heart and your affections and it causes you to want to sacrifice and it causes you to want to give big gifts to God and it causes you to change your priorities and how you live life because you have a new satisfaction and a new joy and you're finally completed in Christ. And so the gospel is not just about doctrine, it's about devotion. We don't just serve a God out of obligation, but out of gratitude. And our joy is not found in exalting ourselves, but in exalting Jesus. We are not trying to live our truth. We are trying to live out God's revealed truth in Christ, and we cannot help but to be overcome with an overwhelming desire to give all that we have and all that we are to Jesus. This is this is, by the way, where you find your greatest joy. You know, anytime you start thinking about, well, if I give a big gift like that, then I'll miss it. If I give a thousand dollars to the Lord, I'm gonna miss my money. And it's like, then you don't get it. Because the more you give, the more you're like, oh, that felt so good. I think I want to give another thousand. That was awesome. I just give, and I give, and I give, and as I give, God fills me, and He replenishes me, and He satisfies me in my devotion, and my delight, and the extravagance of love continues to grow on and on and on in my heart. Proverbs 10, verse seven says, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. This was a righteous woman with a radical affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and her name is remembered, but the name of a wicked person will rot. Ecclesiastes seven verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment. Mary had both, precious ointment that she gave and she has a good name and as far as the gospel goes, the story of this lady goes with it. My question to you is what kind of name do you have? What kind of legacy will you leave? Will you work together? with your family, to worship the Lord, and will you use your gifts and your talents to honor him? Just there in the take home, which one of these three, being a witness, a worker, or a worshiper, which one of those three comes more naturally for you? Do you tend to be more evangelistic, more of a hard worker, or more just someone who, like Mary, sits at the feet of Jesus? Second question, how can you encourage your family to excel in all three areas? So if you see yourself as, I'm more of the Martha, I'm more of the Lazarus, I'm kind of more like Mary, we want to excel in all three. And as a family, you have the opportunity to learn and glean and encourage one another to do it together. Lastly, if you were there on that day, would you have been more likely to have scolded Mary or praised her for her extravagant devotion? It's a convicting thought. Would you have been tempted to think, oh, Mary, that's too much, save some of it. Not all of it. It's all gone on one. Are you going to give it all? Would you have scolded her or praised her? I pray that we can think through these things and encourage one another in our times together of family worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word and to see the truths that we see and a familiar story. And God, we want to be challenged. And we want to be encouraged at the same time that we would be able to see Christ exalted in our hearts and in our lives, God, that we wouldn't be so stingy, that we wouldn't be so dependent on the physicality of what we think we need, but rather, God, we would be happy, joyful, to show more extravagance, seeing it as a true blessing and a great privilege to give above and beyond what we would normally think of to the greatness and the glory of your name. Help us to be a generous church, joyfully giving to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.